Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 21, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. You notice by our name, what we do here is pay ridiculous attention to Jesus, and our premise is that you can keep doing that your entire life and never get to the end of his well, the bottom of his well. You'll just keep uncovering more and uh, remarkable and astonishing beauty as you go deeper. My name is Rick. I'm author of the book Spiritual Grit, released last year, and The Jesus-Centered Life, released a couple years ago, and editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible. Uh, And if you've never cracked open a Jesus-Centered Bible, please check it out. You can can go to your local Christian bookstore, and they'll have it there, or even your local Barnes & Noble, they'll have it there, or you can check it out online. Just go to group.com and search for Jesus-Centered Bible. You'll find it there. Get actually online, kind of a good digital overview of what's in the Bible, and it's it's a, a New Living Translation Bible with a bunch of extra features in it that help you to focus on Jesus, pay ridiculous attention to Him, no matter where you're reading. And some of those extra features aren't in any other Bible in the world. We discovered that after we created them. <laughs> but if you haven't already checked out a Jesus Center Bible, please do. And today we begin a new series that will extend deep into the summer, maybe all through the summer, just depends on uh, the momentum and where uh, the shifting winds of the Spirit take us. That couldn't have been more churchy. Um, But I'm calling this new series, Jesus Answers Life's Essential Questions. Now, for those of you who have a Jesus-centered Bible and love your Jesus-centered Bible, that, it probably sounds a little familiar to you because... In that Bible, one of those extra features in the New Testament is a series of uh, sort of sidebar boxes throughout the the Gospels that explores how Jesus answers the most essential questions we have in life. And so that was one of the many projects that I worked on over the two-year time that we our team was working on this Bible. And what I did was I did a whole bunch of research to try to condense down the basic, most essential questions all human beings have. And through that research, I narrowed them down to these nine questions. And then it was sort of an experiment where I took those nine questions and I looked for places where Jesus addressed those questions. So that's what we're going to do over the course of the summer. We're going to take those nine questions, and sometimes we may go back to one of these questions and answer it again in a different way, but we're at least going to target each one of these nine questions one time and see how Jesus unwraps the mystery behind these questions. So the nine questions are, I bet you're on the edge of your seat or your scooter or your Harley right now, waiting to hear what the nine questions are. Here's what I condensed them down to. What's my purpose in life? Is God real? Why do bad things happen? What is the meaning of life? It sounds like something a line from a Monty Python movie. What is the meaning of life? Is this all there is? 
Will everything be okay? What is truth? What is love? And what is right and wrong? I think you can pretty much put under the umbrella of all of these questions any question we have as human beings, any question that really matters to us, you can put underneath one of these. So I'm reminded of one of the many things Winston Churchill said that forgotten who said it in the first place, but it's just so true. He said that our life can seem like a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. <laughs> life is like a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. And these questions sort of are the expression of that mystery of life, that these are the questions we can't get rid of. They're always down there somewhere underneath everything. They drive our behavior. They, they drive some of the stupid choices we make sometimes. And in the end, they drive us to Jesus, I think. So what if we invited Jesus to solve that mystery for us, the, the mystery of our life? So many of us try to spend our whole life kind of working out the answers to these nine questions on our own. So let's just instead slow down and trust the Spirit, who I call the rabbi inside, the Spirit of Jesus, to tackle our toughest struggles and our doubts and our fears. So in this episode, we're going to kick off the series by uh, going after that first question, what's my purpose in life? So last night I was watching the first episode of a new season of A Guilty Pleasure that my whole family watches. And that guilty pleasure is called America's Got Talent. We watch this show. Sometimes I, like last night, several times I groaned out loud for something that somebody on the show said. I made an audible groan, and my daughter Emma was like, what's wrong, Dad? And I said, oh, I just hope I don't have to hear that over and over again, what I just heard. Nevertheless, we're kind of hooked on this show, which is essentially a talent show, any kind of talent. Last year's winner was a magician who was remarkable. But we just started watching the new season. It was the first episode last night. And they have a new magician. This is the like the audition stage. So they bring up a bunch of people, and the four judges either you know, give them a thumbs up or a thumbs down, and they can keep going if they get enough thumbs up. And then the show kind of funnels people from there. And the way the producers work this is they mostly have acts that get a thumbs up, and then they throw in these ridiculous things every now and then that are so bad they're entertaining. So that's the way the show works. And so in the first half hour, I think it was the third person they had do their audition. He was another magician. And he kind of looks like last year's winning magician. You have to kind of do a double take a little bit. He looks a little bit like him. Um, But this magician's name is Eric Chen. And he was incredibly nervous before he started his performance. And I don't know if that was a ploy or what, because he went on to do just some remarkable stuff in his performance, like stuff you've never seen and you can't imagine how he did it. So he did a bunch of that stuff. And But prior to doing his performance, they had a little video package that kind of went into his story. And he has a fascinating story. He, he basically describes how he's loved magic from an early, early age. And he intended to become a professional magician, but when he got into his late teens, early 20s, he was suddenly called up for military service in Taiwan. So they didn't really go into detail about his background, but he's a Taiwanese native, obviously. 
And I did not know this, but they have mandatory military service required for all young men. And so when he was called into military service, he could not take anything with him, none of his cards, his magic tricks, none of this stuff. And these had been his closest companions his whole life. And so he described in this video package how he literally lost his identity while he was doing his military service. He didn't know who he was anymore because he had always seen himself fundamentally as a magician. And now he couldn't practice any of that while he was serving in the military. So it was a really kind of a heart-wrenching story of him losing his identity. And it made perfect sense, though, because you know maybe yourself and other people who are so invested in some aspect of what they love to do that they really can't separate themselves from that thing that they do. So, And it's easy also to translate the purpose of our life to our vocation. In fact, that's our, you know, our primary sort of marker for who we are and what our purpose in life is. We most often find that buried inside of our vocation, our job or our career. So we're we're hungering to know and embrace what our good impact in the world is. That's another way of saying what's my purpose. We want to know what good impact we were made for in the world and uh, the default place we often look to is our work life. It's just the easiest place to try to find it. It's the one that makes the most sense. It's the one that connects to our education and maybe something we've always wanted to do. But it's a, obviously a dangerous connection there because when you connect your identity at its core to your work, you may not be doing work that really reflects your true identity in the end. And, and so you're in constant dissonance over that. Or your work may suddenly go away, and your life may take a sudden change of vocation, and what happens to your identity then? We all know the cliché that, especially, it's stereotyped to men primarily, but when a man loses his job, he also loses his identity temporarily. And I think that's one of those stereotypes that's true. I know several men in my life who've had long-time careers and suddenly were fired for one reason or another, and the just the depression and the struggle that set in because of it was profound. So I remember um, even uh, early on for me, when you're in high school heading into college, it's a time where you know the, the all of the options are really open to you, and it's it's actually more difficult in some ways because you you if you don't already have a sense of what you were created to do then the choices seem too many. <laughs> and what if you make a mistake? What if you invest yourself in one tangent or trajectory and it doesn't work out? So uh, I remember when I was uh, in high school, I found, I started on the trajectory that would lead me into my vocation and my career, but I didn't know it at the time. So I had had a very strong set of friends all the way through elementary school, middle school, and into high school, into my junior year of high school, and those friends, we had spent so much time living life together, sleepovers, every afternoon in the summer, goofing around together. But as we got older, you can start to see as when you're kids, you see little trajectory differences when you're little kids, but that trajectory continues to expand out as you get older, and the distance between you can grow. Uh, what seemed like a little difference when you're kids can grow into a big difference the older you get, and that's what happened with my friends and I. 
they started wanting to get involved in some pretty, you know, bad stuff when we became teenagers that I wasn't, I was very uncomfortable with. So I always found an excuse to not go do those things with them. And I was essentially trying to hang on to those relationships without doing the things they started to do. And finally, I had to be more blunt. I just said the last time they invited me to go do something with them, I said, I was honest with them. I said, I just can't do those things, and I'm never going to do those things. I can't go do those things with you guys. You're going to have to do them without me. Well, they had a ferocious response to that. Overnight, they turned against me and were just ferociously mean. I guess is the best way to say it. They uh, bullied my little sister in the school hallways. They painted horrible things on my garage door with spray paint. They just attacked me out of that. And, and actually, only a few years ago, my best friend, who was part of that group, contacted me out of the blue and asked to meet with me for coffee and asked my forgiveness for what he had done when, when we were in high school. So it was a major Grand Canyon-level rift. For me, so all of a sudden, heading into my senior year of high school, I had no friend group anymore. It was a great grief in my life, and in trying to figure out what to do, I decided to join the school newspaper staff so that I would have a tribe to connect with. And it was a scary move for me. I didn't know these people, and they were kind of um, the group that was involved with the school newspaper. I would say they were nerdy, cool. They were all super smart people, and they were into nerdy things. Uh, they were super funny and sardonic all the time. They were the wittiest people I had ever known. Um, and they were also incredibly welcoming of me. And so I found this connection in my senior year of high school, an entirely new set of friendships that I had I'd never known any of these people before. And, and over the course of that year, they became my best friends. And along the way, they asked if I would take over a column in the newspaper, the previous writer had left, so they wanted me to take over this column. It was called The Cat's Meow, because we were the Ar- Arvada West Wildcats. So this column was called The Cat's Meow, and it didn't have a real byline on it. It didn't have my real name on it. The tradition had always been that whoever took on this column, which was a, a humor column, whoever took it on had to take on the byline of the name Skip De Rhetoric. Isn't that witty? Skip de Rhetoric. So my new name was Skip de Rhetoric, and nobody knew that I was writing this column because I had this assumed name. By the way, my Twitter account is at Rick Skip, so it's a little homage to my my, uh, fake name when I was a columnist in high school. So this column, when I started writing it, suddenly took off in popularity. This was like this extraordinary thing that happened to me in high school that All of a sudden, this column that I was now writing was a buzzy sort of column in high school. Lots of people were talking about it, but the big deal was that we had to make sure nobody found out who was writing it. So here I was, this anonymous writer, experiencing quote-unquote popularity for the first time, and I couldn't tell anyone about it. But uh, that column was actually entered in the uh, statewide journalism competition, and I won. (laughs) And so when you're rewarded or awarded for something you do in life, very often it's spotlighting something that you have a natural love for. And this was a profound experience for me. I I was discovering that I could write and that when I wrote, people were impacted by it. And so 
when I was heading into college, I had already been awarded an ROTC engineering scholarship because I had gone pretty far along the path of math in high school, though I hated every single millisecond of math. But I was good at it, and I had this scholarship that would pay for my entire education. I just had to give the military a couple of years of service afterward. And this was really going to help my family, and it was perfect. Everything was good. And I decided at the last minute I could not stand another moment of calculus in the rest of my life. So I decided to turn down the scholarship, but I'd already enrolled at the college I was going to. So I started looking around that college. What can I do? What could my major be now that I'm already enrolled in this place? And I decided, hey, I won a statewide award for writing a column. How about if I go to journalism school at this college? So my major became technical journalism. And out of that came a double major in journalism. And out of that came a career pursuit where I was served on a newspaper staff. And and out of that came... Uh, my job here at Group, where I started as a copy editor and then within six months became editor of Group Magazine. And here I am still writing and editing 32 years later after that. So you can see how in my story, my vocation, the thing that I'm doing now, writing and editing is is a significant part of what I do. But I, I also, obviously, I do stuff like podcasts and I create and lead events. And I do a lot of face-to-face things. I do a lot of speaking in what I do. I kind of serve in a pastoral role as well in lots of ways, not just with the small group that I lead every week of 20 or so teenagers, but in adult uh, environments as well, I serve as kind of a pastoral role. So my life has really branched out as time has gone on and has fleshed out other parts of my identity and my purpose. But I can track back all the way back to high school and even before that, where you see sort of the crockpot of your purpose and identity slowly simmering uh, until it, it begins to boil when you get older. And yet, even though I see my identity and purpose really tied in many ways to this path that I'd been on, these things are this pursuit, my vocation is really not my identity. It's my vocation is tied to my identity, and my vocation can flesh out my identity and maybe even help facilitate my identity, but it is not my identity. It's simply magnifying it or putting a frame around it. So most of us, by the way, learn this the hard way, that our vocation is not our true identity. I have a close friend who was part of a morning drive-time radio DJ team in a city in the Southwest, and uh, he was very popular, he and his partner, for 20 years. They were the number one morning radio show in this major city in the Southwest. And he was at the top of his game, number one in the ratings, and the radio station he was working for got new management, and they came in, and for some reason that's still unclear, they decided to fire him, to let him go. They wanted to change directions, and so they let the number one guy in that market go. Well, when that happened, he was devastated, and it took him years. I had been close to him before, and I'm still close to him now, and I would say that happened 10 years ago, and he is still trying to process what happened to him. And he has a new life, and you can see the grace of Jesus in his life and how it's led to something he never would have pursued otherwise, but still... It was as if he got his legs knocked out from underneath him. It's normal for us to attach ourselves to our vocation in this way. 
but it's also insidious because we start to think that the thing that we do to make a living is really who we are at a fundamental level. And we need a better foundation for our identity than simply our vocation. It reminds me of uh, what Jesus said in this little parable in Matthew chapter 7, where he talks about building your house on the sand or building your house on bedrock. And in that context, he's using it to say, if you listen to my words and don't obey, don't do what I'm saying, then you're really building your house on sand. But if you listen to my words and you act out of them, you do something as a result, then you're building your house on bedrock. Another way to kind of uh, redirect what Jesus is saying here is you could say that if you build your identity or you invest your identity in your vocation, you're building your life on sand. Something can come and knock it over, and in the process, knock you over. So what Jesus' invitation to us is, is to build our identity, to find our purpose planted and anchored in something that's more like bedrock. So you could say that the mission of Jesus is to reclaim your kingdom of God identity and purpose, that when he came to set captives free, to give them the good news of their redemption and salvation and invitation into the royal family of God, that really his end game is to reclaim our true identity and to release in us our true purpose in life. That's why he came. That's his mission. So let's. Uh, I'm, I'm, what I'm going to do is explore how Jesus sort of touches in, connects into this question of what's my purpose in life through four or five different encounters that he had. And these are all, by the way, uh, highlighted in the Jesus-centered Bible. You'll find them there. So uh, I'm just going to follow the path that I originally laid out in the Jesus-centered Bible. And so the first one is in Matthew 4, 19. So what we're going to do here is pay attention to have always in the back of our mind this big question, what's my purpose in life? And I, I want you to be thinking about that relative to the person that Jesus is encountering here, and what is Jesus highlighting in this encounter that helps us to understand the mystery of our purpose in life. And so it's good to start out at the beginning in Matthew chapter 4. Let's read from verse 18 in my Jesus-centered Bible. The little heading over this is the first disciples. So here we go. One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they had fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. Such a crazy little story. You wonder if back then, when the Bible was being recorded, if they'd had computers and word processors, if we'd have a Bible about 400 times the size that we have now, because it was so difficult to record these things, they were very sparing with the words that they used. So here we have this story, this encounter of Jesus on the, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Peter and Andrew working their commercial fishing business, and he just looks at them and says, hey, why don't you guys follow me, and I will show you how to fish for men. And they drop their nets and they go. I think in part what we can take from this story is the palpable hunger that people have for a deeper, more impactful purpose in their life. That's what we started off this episode with. That question, what's my purpose in life, is really a question about, well, what good impact was I created for in the world? And here we have Peter and Andrew with that question very close to the surface for them. 
because they respond immediately to Jesus's invitation to discover a deeper purpose in their life. These first disciples were all, James and John were in the same boat here, so to speak. <laughs> they were all fishermen. They were all working in the commercial fishing business. And really what Jesus is dangling here is a little bait of his own. He's baiting them with the possibility that their life might have deeper and more broader and impactful meaning. Like most people, of course, these men would identify themselves by their occupation because what defines us typically is is what we do for work, as we talked about. So Jesus here is appealing to the deepest place in their soul, the place where their identity lives. He's offering here to reorient their purpose in life. So let me paraphrase some of the invitation I think that Jesus is giving these guys here. So think about this, from again, from their perspective, put yourself in their shoes, and I think this is the sort of invitation that Jesus is offering them. I think he's saying, what if you could trade your small dreams for one big dream? What if you were created to be a source through me of rescue and redemptive hope for others? What if your life was meant to capture others and rescue them from a sea of hopelessness and drag them into a boat of refuge where they can find the life they were created to live? What if you were fishing for people and trying to land them in your boat? In this twist of the metaphor, the the fish landing in your boat find life. They're rescued out of peril and fear and anxiety and hopelessness into the safety of your boat. What if that was your real purpose? What if I showed you, Jesus says to them, how you could snag people and rescue them and invite them into their deepest hopes? So our purpose in life is to love Jesus with everything that we are. He was pretty clear about that, all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he wants us to love others with that same level of passion, all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus has this passion for people, and he wants us, by our attachment to him, to gain that same passion. So the truth is, we are all created. It's not just these disciples. This is not an offer just to these men. It's an offer to all of us. We are all created to fish for men, so to speak. Our purpose in life, no matter what our particular calling is, is to hook and rescue as many fish as we can in our life, to set captives free, because as I've mentioned many times in the podcast, setting captives free is the family business in the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus is doing 24-7. He is artistically, persistently, and beautifully fishing for people. And when he snags them, he rescues them. And when he rescues them, he restores their identity and sends them out with a clearer sense of their own purpose in life. That's the family business of Jesus. So the answer to the question, what's my purpose in life, here we find it in Jesus calling out deeper occupation from these fishermen to trade fishing for fish for fishing for men. The next one is in Matthew chapter 5. It starts in verse 13. So this will be familiar to you if you are a, a Bible nerd. You've heard this your whole life. But here he's teaching in the Beatitudes, and he has this little vignette here where he makes a comparison 
to what he wants us to, what kind of impact he wants us to have in the world. So starting in verse 13 of chapter 5 of Matthew, here's what he says. You are the salt of the earth. Now, we've often heard that term, salt of the earth, um, and we often mean it to say that it's sort of a blue-collar mentality, a kind of a down-home, you know, no-frills kind of person. But here Jesus means it quite differently. He mean, When he references salt, he means something that has a radical transformational impact on the food that it's put on. So here he says, you are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It'll be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. And you are the light of the world. Again, he's using light here in a transformative way. He's saying light that comes on in the darkness. It makes a startling difference in the surroundings. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that can't be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Here we have him using one of his favorite techniques, metaphor, a couple of different ways to try to describe the contrast that he wants us to be in the world. So it's not a stretch to say that our true purpose in life is to offer the world around us something that's contrary to the natural flow, momentum, or current, or the way of thinking and doing things in the world. He's saying your purpose is not to flow with the world, it's to be a contrast to the prevalent way of thinking in the world. So an example of that would be something I've been thinking about a lot um, lately is we're surrounded by a lot of anger right now in the world. And we talked in our last episode uh, before this, the, the last episode of our Fully Human series, all about our mismanagement of anger. And, and uh, that just delving into that aspect of Jesus' character has made me think a lot and become more aware of the anger around me, whether it's just that I'm noticing it more or it's just simply grown more, but wow, there's a lot more anger in our environment now. Then if that's the case, if the momentum of our cultural environment is this sort of destructive anger that we experience all around us, what does salt and light mean in the midst of that? What would be an extraordinary contrast to that? Look amazing in the light of that. I think that's what Jesus is trying to get at here. Life for us in its sort of, you could call it our natural state, is divorced from the richness of a relationship with God. It's bland. So a, a life without Jesus is by definition bland, because he is the salt that gives us our saltiness. So if our purpose is to bring salt, the salt of the kingdom of God, the salt of his heart, to season this bland kingdom of earth that we live in, well, what does that mean for us? How do we live out our purpose to bring light or salt into the kingdom of the earth? So one way to kind of get our hearts around this is to accept that part of our identity is to be contrary people at our core, that we're not called to mesh or merge, but to be contrary in the world, to bring out contrast to the norms of this earth for the purpose of making everything more tasty, more beautiful. So uh, I have a friend named Johnny Baker who is 
sort of a transformational voice in my life and in my wife's life. He used to be head of Youth for Christ in London, and uh, now he's moved into a sort of a broader ministry role, working for a, a centuries-old uh, ministry organization in England. But he's one of the most creative people I've ever known, and in his whole ministry leadership uh, role was fashioned in an environment where the church had almost died in England. And he and a band of a few others had begun to replant a new way of approaching a relationship with Jesus that was much more creative and experiential and risk-taking. And that's when I met him, when he was just planting this new approach. So from that early meeting with Johnny, my wife and I have intersected with his life off and on over the last 20 years. And at one point, he was in our house staying overnight while he was on his way to somewhere else, and uh, we were having breakfast with him, and my wife was sharing with him um, how she always has felt almost her whole life like she doesn't fit in, like the women's Bible study at church, she doesn't feel like she fits in there. Maybe you, if you're a woman, you've felt the same thing in your church. You just don't fit that culture, the women's Bible study, or she doesn't really fit in her family, and she went on and on. She was just kind of rattling off all the ways that she doesn't fit in. And Johnny looked at her and he said, well, you have the gift of not fitting in. And she said, what? And he said, you have the gift of not fitting in. So do I. He said, that's actually a precious gift, the gift of not fitting in. Instead of seeing it as an enemy or something, a problem to solve, what if you embraced that Jesus has given you the gift of not fitting in? I thought that was profound, and I think it speaks to what Jesus is doing here when he talks about salt and light. He's really saying, the contrast that I've called you to is good. The contrariness that you feel in this world should remind you that you were made for another world. When you join me in the kingdom of God, you are not going to feel a contrary sense. When you join me in the kingdom of God, where I'm gone to prepare a place for you that's particularly suited for who you are, you are not going to feel like you don't fit in. You're going to feel the opposite at a deep level for the first time in your life. You will fit, but you won't fit here. So accept that as part of your mission and purpose in life, that you live out the gift of not fitting in. Let's go to the next one from Matthew 9. Let me flip over here in my Bible. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. So let's read this little account of where Jesus calls the tax collector Matthew. So starting in verse 9, it says, As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, Healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. And then he added, Now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners." So here we have Jesus calling out Matthew in a bit of a different way than he called out Andrew and Peter and James and John. Here he sees a man who is the scourge of his culture. People are disgusted by him. 
the only people that go to his home to eat are other disgusting people. Um, they're outcasts from their own culture. They're, they're talked about behind their back. And here Jesus passes Matthew in his tax collector's booth. He's in the middle of his job. And Jesus looks at him and says, why don't you follow me and be my disciple? Now, in this culture, this isn't the way it's supposed to work. When you become a disciple of a noted rabbi, and at this time, Jesus is the rock star rabbi in his culture, the way this is supposed to work is you're a young man who goes out and tries to convince the rabbi that you want to attach yourself to to take you on. And so that rabbi may ask you a series of questions and to test your intellect and to get at your character, but the onus is on the, the student or the Talmud, not the rabbi. It's the Talmud who is seeking the invitation of the rabbi. And here Jesus never seeks that invitation. He offers it. He says to Matthew, follow me and become my disciple. It's an extraordinary offer. It could have given Matthew a heart attack to hear Jesus say this, because it's the last thing he would have expected to come out of his mouth. Attach yourself to me and learn from me. Share my life. Become immersed in who I am. This is an offer Matthew can't refuse. <laughs> and uh, as a tax collector, he was probably in the, the Jewish mafia, so an offer you can't refuse probably was a familiar way of thinking to him. <laughs> and here he has one that is offering him hope he can't refuse. So in this powerful encounter just reminds me that, again, if we go back to the question, what's my purpose in life? Our purpose in life really is to follow the leading of the Spirit into the work that Jesus has given us. So the body of Christ on earth, which is how Jesus describes us, he's essentially saying, now that I'm going and my Spirit has come to live and make his home in you, you now become my extension in the world. You are doing the things that I do in the world. I will move through you because I'm physically not here anymore. And so well, what is central to the things that Jesus was doing is now central for what we do in the world. And so we know that some of what's central to what Jesus was doing was to bring healing and hope to the sick. And in this case, the, the sick <laughs> are the people who've messed up their lives and done lots of bad things. They're sick with the consequences of their sin, and Jesus wants to restore them to the health of righteousness. We know from multiple encounters that Jesus sees physical illness and soul illness as the same. They're both destructive, and they both need healing. And here he sees Matthew, a man who understands soul sickness to the core of his being, and he calls him into a new purpose in life. Um, he wants him, quote-unquote, on his team because he wants Matthew to be able to reach those who have the particular kind of sickness he does, the sickness of a man who's lived with betrayal and marginalization and the boos and hisses of the crowd. He wants someone who's experienced that to its depth so that he can turn and become a healer within those communities of people who, who've experienced the same thing. Jesus wants to prepare us to set captives free in our life, and our particular form of uh, setting free is almost always tied 
to the pain and darkness we've experienced in our own life, because he knows that if we have lived in that darkness, we won't be afraid to go there on behalf of someone else. So here he calls Matthew into his purpose in life, and his purpose is to be a physician for those who are sick in the soul. So you can imagine then that all of us are really called to be doctors in that sense, that it's just our particular form of sickness that we're called to bring healing to, whatever that might be. And I'm saying that what your particular calling as a physician is going to be tied to the place where you are sick the most. The place where you needed most healing is the place that he wants to redeem, restore, and then extend himself to bring healing in the world. So the fruit of the vine, we are the branch connected to that vine, um, and that vine is feeding life into our branch. That fruit that's produced then is restoring and nurturing to, and nourishing to others. The fruit that then comes from our attachment to Jesus is literally nourishing to others. And in, and in this example of the calling of Matthew, um, you can see how Jesus has, has selected him um, as one of his twelve to make sure he's got the, the, the dark caves of those who are sick in the soul covered. He wants Matthew to extend himself into those dark places because he's been there before. Let's go to two more, and then we'll close off here. Matthew 28. Let's flip over back to the back of Matthew's Gospel. Let's see here. Matthew chapter 28, and we're going to read verses 18 through 20, so this uh, a little short snippet here. It's under um, the, the heading that is very familiar, again, to you Bible nerds or people who have grown up in the church, heard this a million times from sermons. It's under the heading of the Great Commission. So actually, we'll start in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee. The eleven because Judas had committed suicide. The eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some of them doubted. This is obviously post-resurrection. Verse 18, Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." So here, the, our, if, you, if you think about what's my purpose in life, it's a pretty simple uh, translation here. We're to move in the authority that Jesus has given us and invite others into this disciple relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our purpose in life is to help them understand and obey the heart of Jesus. And the heart of Jesus is best expressed, it kind of sounds funny, but through his commands. When he tells us that there's a way to live that's reflective of the kingdom of God, i.e. a command, he's really expressing the most intimate reflection of the heart of God. He's expressing to us the values and the priorities and the passions that are locked up in God's heart. And so he wants us to introduce others to those values and priorities and passions in God's heart. He wants us to invite others into this sort of immersive disciple relationship. He's not wanting us to invite others into a learning environment. He wants us to invite others into an intimate relational environment. So at the end of this, he also reminds us that we can't do this on our own, so 
of course I'll always be with you, no matter what, to help facilitate this. So if you ask, what is my purpose in life? Uh, Our purpose in life is to invite others into the kind of disciple relationship that has transformed our life as well. And in the end, that means inviting them into uh, the depths of the heart of Jesus, to introduce them to Jesus in such a way that we reveal how beautiful and attractive his heart is. So when we approach things that he quote-unquote commands, we don't approach them as shoulds, we approach them as the beautiful revelation of the passions and priorities of the heart of Jesus. The last one is from the Gospel of John. We'll, we'll take a look at, toward the end of the Gospel of John, John chapter 21. I'm just going to flip over there now. John chapter 21, starting in verse 15, and this will be the last one we take a look at. Again, we're thinking about the big question in life, what is my purpose in life? Starting in verse 15, this is, again, after the resurrection of Jesus, and he's on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, He has invited the disciples who fished all night and didn't catch anything to throw their net over the side of the boat and catch a bunch of fish and then come back to the shore for breakfast. And in verse 15, it says, After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. And Jesus then repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Well, yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. And a third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Well, Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. So here... Jesus is introducing to Peter, as we've talked about before on the podcast, his, he's doing so many things in this short encounter. He's resurfacing Peter's great pain. If you think about what we've been talking about in this podcast, how your identity is sort of a self-narrative, it's tied to who you see yourself as, and that's often tied to your vocation. And Peter certainly saw himself as a courageous, brave I'll fight for you to the end kind of guy. It's very clear that that's how he lived his life, and here he loses his identity when he betrays Jesus three times. He didn't just betray Jesus, he betrayed his own identity, and then he loses his identity, and then he disappears from the scene until he resurfaces here on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus doesn't beat around the bush. He goes right back after this explosion that happened in Peter's heart where he lost his identity, and he asks him three times, do you love me, corresponding to the three times that he publicly betrayed him. So he surfaces this tremendous pain in Peter, and what he's really doing is surfacing Peter's identity. He's trying to restore Peter's identity and redirect it from, I will fight for you, Jesus, and lay down my life for you no matter what, to the purpose that Jesus has for him. Jesus is really giving Peter his missional purpose in life. And these words will guide and direct Peter's steps till the end of his days. If you love me, take care of my sheep. Well, sheep need to be fed and nurtured and protected, and sometimes they need to be stopped from doing stupid things that will harm them, and sometimes they need to be prodded to do things that are actually good for them. And sometimes they need their shepherd to lay down their life for them. And Peter's purpose in life here, and it's really our purpose as well, is to give what we have to give to others with the kind of passion and abandon that we've experienced in Jesus. So 
this good shepherd model for us, where Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, really what he's doing here with Peter is he's saying, my identity is a good shepherd, it's your identity now. Now your purpose in life is to feed and prod and protect and defend the sheep, the sheep I've given you. Whatever sheep come into your life, whatever sheep wander into your field, I want you to gather them and nurture them into health. So our purpose in life here we can find in the heart of a shepherd, and it's really at the core of this encounter that Jesus has with Peter. He's inviting Peter to lay down the identity he held on to his whole life, which was fragile in the first place. It didn't take much to topple it. And he gives him his true identity, his true purpose in life, which is to have the heart of a shepherd toward his sheep, to, if necessary, uh, lay down his life for those sheep with the kind of passion that Jesus has as well. In the end, we find our purpose in life only hidden inside the heart of Jesus. That's where we discover it. Um, It's like the treasure that we have to search for in the field, and when we find it, we sell everything to get it. Well, the treasure that we find in the heart of Jesus is our own identity. So would you sell everything you have? Would you sell the identity that you have accumulated in your life to this point to buy the treasure that is in the heart of Jesus? That's his invitation to you. I love how Eugene Peterson in Ephesians 1, 11 through 12, paraphrases that little section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I just love it. I saw it first painted on the side of a youth room, and I had to go find where this was. It, it wasn't a, a rendering that I'd ever heard of from Ephesians, and of course, it was from the message that Eugene Peterson wrote. So here's Ephesians 1, 11 through 12, uh, poetically reimagined by Eugene Peterson. It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we're living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us, had designs on us for glorious living, part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and everyone. And what good news this is. What if your purpose in life was to reflect the heart of Jesus? What if your purpose in life was to live a glorious life, that this is the joy that Jesus wants to infuse in us, that we find and express a higher calling and a deeper purpose in our life, that we join the family business, that we find our greatest satisfaction in partnering with him to set captives free. Well, your purpose in life will emerge or blossom as you draw near to Jesus. You get closer to his heart, you get closer to the treasure that's hidden there. You don't have to find it when you get there. It will find you. You know, my wife, Bev, has been searching like a nomad for most of her adult life for her own purpose in life. In her perspective, I think my purpose has always seemed clearer, and hers has seemed more fuzzy. But in the last year or two, she has begun to find clarity in her purpose in life, and it's really come as a fruit of her drawing near to the heart of Jesus. As she has drawn more near to the heart of Jesus, she has had infused into her heart a deep passion for the marginalized, the refugee, the poor. And that's what's really led her in the end. She, she was always talking to me about how she wishes she could do something about the, the Syrian refugee problem, 
the horrific situation that the Syrian people have been put in over the last six or seven years, and the heartbreaking ways that their lives have been stolen from them, and how they've ended up sort of washed up onto the shore of uh, the United States in some cases, lost and alone and not knowing what to do. She talked to me for years about wanting to somehow make a difference in this world, and I happened to meet a couple at an event that was involved with reaching out to Syrian refugees, so I told Bev about it, and she got in contact with them, and that little mustard seed has led to a tree <laughs> that has grown up, and, and the branches on the branches of the tree now rest two families of Syrian refugees, where she is reaching out to them and trying to come alongside them into their mess and chaos and darkness and try to bring light and redemption and hope helping them to taste the grace of Jesus, even when they don't know it's the grace of Jesus. She has found her heart. She has found her purpose as she drew near to the heart of Jesus. It found her in the end. She didn't have to go beat the bushes to find it. It captured her. Well, gang, thanks for listening. Remember, you can find out more on paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com. This one is season four, episode 21. You'll find links to things we've mentioned here today right there, including a link to the Jesus Center Bible. If you want to go check out these nine essential questions of human beings and how Jesus answered them, they're all in there in the Gospels. And we'll, uh, as I said, be pursuing this thread throughout the summer, tackling one question after another and unveiling how Jesus unwraps the mystery of each one. So this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll talk again next week. 